All right, moving back to 1 Corinthians from these other intriguing topics. Uh, tonight we're in chapter 11, which has been a little bit of a, um, it's one of those um, debated or <clears throat> maybe I could say contentious chapter. It's a chapter, the interpretation of, especially the first half, people differ on because of the changes in Western society concerning the roles of women in society. And this relates, this chapter relates to the um, roles and the um, the, how, how women present themselves uh, both in society and in relation to the church and so it, it, it actually has some intriguing things to say on both sides of that, of that question or issue so it would be fun to spend a little time on tonight we only have chapter 11 tonight I know last week we do three chapters this week we do one you think you can split that up differently but it's because of what was in each and actually chapters I think Paul intended it this way that um, he actually lays the groundwork as he works through the other very, very uh, pertinent cultural issue of the day, eating food sacrificed to idols, particularly meat sacrificed to idols. That was a huge issue. But the way he does that, he takes considerable time in doing that in his letter in ways that establish some principles that then can be applied into these other issues. And so I think you see those same principles, chapters 8, 9, and 10, applied here. So I want to review that, but first let's open in prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for bringing us back together tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. Thank you for this letter to the Corinthians that, Lord, we can benefit from it, that we can, we can learn and understand and, and uh, apply this truth into the choices that we would make and how we would interact with others around them. Father, um, Instruct us tonight out of your word, and Lord, work in us a, a gracious consideration of others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just to review 1 Corinthians, uh, as I suggested, one of the key verses in the book is chapter 2 and verse 2. I determined to know nothing among you except this, Jesus Christ and not Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the, 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 the sovereign, ruling, conquering king. Christ crucified, the one who willingly laid his life down for our benefit, for our salvation, uh, the one who, who humbled himself in order to bring many sons to glory. So I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now that, I think, as we saw, it plays out in terms of the relationship of the, of the cliques and people um, um, joining one party or another and elevating themselves at the expense of others. Uh, we see it in, in their um, wanting to assert their own rights, even legally if they have to, taking one another to the pagan courts in order to get their way, asserting their, their privilege, rather than, as he says, why not rather be wronged? as Christ was wrong. So there's that 2-2 two -two connection. Now we see it again in chapter 8, 9, and 10 is food sacrifice to idols or meat sacrifice to idols. Um, chapter 8, consider others. What are the needs of others? If, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I will never again eat meat. I will consider others rather than just considering what do I want and what can I do. Um, yield your rights for the sake of others. One of the things he talks about in chapter 9 that I recall is, is he, um, uh, he's willing, he has the rights of an apostle 
to be supported by the church that he's ministering to, and yet he doesn't claim that right. He has the right to bring along a believing spouse, as the other apostles do. Is he not also an apostle? And yet he doesn't claim that right. And so he sets an example of yielding their rights. Instead, he buffets his body. He makes it his slave. That he's not driven and controlled by his desires, but he, he puts those desires under his control. One of the marks of maturity, you see it in the qualifications of elders, is being self-controlled. Having oneself and one's desires under control. So consider others, and for the sake of others, yielding your rights, and also considering a bigger spiritual reality. Do you remember the issue of, um, in the issue of meat sacrificed to idols? We get to chapter 10. Do you remember what the bigger spiritual reality was? They said, well, an idol, you know, it's just stone, it's just wood. There's only one God, there's only one true God, so why are we worried about idols? Well, what was the bigger spiritual reality there? concerning those idols. Is there anything spiritually going on in idols temple? Is there anything spiritually going on in a Hindu temple in India? Is there a spiritual reality there? Oh, I would say there is. I would say there's a demonic presence. That is a spiritual reality. And that's what he says about, the, about these, these idol temples in Corinth. They're behind the idol, there is, a, there is a demon. So the things that they are offering, they are offering to demonic spirits behind the idol. So, idol, or, so demonic spirits are soaking up this attention and this, this, this honor and this worship. Um, so he, he says, I don't want you to participate in an idol feast. Because it's not just nothing, there is a participation with demonic spirits there. I don't want you to have participation with demons. I want you to have participation. He compares that to being one with the Lord and, and coming to the Lord's table. And we have a participation with Christ around the Lord's table. <gasps> chapter 10, he mentions the Lord's table. It's going to come back to it in chapter 11, isn't he? And, and he does it with, there's a bigger spiritual reality that you don't want to overlook. So those are the three principles. That put, I, I put a note in the top of your, of, of your notes page that um, these three are going to come into play as we move into chapter 11. Now I scrolled down already from um, verse 1 because I take verse 1 as the end of, as the ESV did. did chapter divisions do too. They actually put it back with the previous section. Be followers of me as I am of Christ. He's following Christ by, end of verse 32, not seeking my own advantage but the benefit of many that they would be saved. That's chapter 2 and verse 2 again, isn't it? So, follow as I follow Christ. Now, verse 2, okay, we're going to get into this question about head coverings. Um, at the top of your, your note page, and this, this outline, now we're starting with section C, and that's following the outline from the previous notes pages. So if you have all of those saved up from the different classes, and if you'd like me to give you a, a complete set once we're finished, so you'd have it all together in one document, I will do that. I can't do it ahead of time because I'm still adapting them as we go. Week by week, I'm updating what was there um, to give it my own personalized twist adding some of Bob's own heresies into the mix. Okay, so spiritual equality in Christ does not eliminate gender distinctions in function and form in the church. 
Now here we're talking about head coverings. We are not a brethren church, so head coverings are not particularly themselves a big issue tonight. Although, thank you, Sarah for the beanie. Appreciate that. <laughs> but that, that's not a big issue in our church if a woman is wearing a hat or not. Did you know that in the past, the reason that in conservative churches, women could wear hats and yet men would take their hats off coming into church, the reason for that was 1 Corinthians 11. That men don't, don't uh, prophesy or pray with their head covered with a hat, like a ball cap, and even now, typically, when we pray, if a group of guys gathered around when they pray, they all quickly take their hats off, finish praying, we put our hat back on again, right? That comes out of um, this chapter, not having our head covered. And, uh, but maybe to push in a little bit more, um, an issue that's arising today, in fact, it just came up with Saddleback Church, Rick Warren's church. What was that issue? Saddleback Church was just expelled from the Southern Baptist Convention. Because they have ordained women, including the new senior pastor's wife, as pastors and teaching pastors. And the Southern Baptist Convention says, uh, that's not us. We have, they, have, they officially said in, 2000, in, in the year 2000, so 23 years ago, that um, um, we, we do not recognize the ordaining of women as pastors. So, um, does that mean that women don't have the ability to teach? Does, that women are not gifted by God to teach within the church? Does that mean that women don't even have shepherding or what you consider a pastoral gift? Is that what that means? Would the Southern Baptist um, Convention say that women are not gifted as teachers by the Spirit? That women are not ever given the, the gift of shepherding others? I don't think they would say that. They, there's a difference between form and function. There's a difference between a, an office held and a ministry performed, is another way to think about it. So, not everybody who pastors and shepherds is called pastor or elder. Uh, a lot of our small group leaders are actively shepherding others within this church body. Walking with them spiritually, nurturing them and helping them to grow, and yet nobody's calling them pastor or elder. They don't hold that office, but they perform that kind of ministry. So that's the difference between thinking about a, a, um, a function versus a role or an office, a form. Okay. So maybe think about, have that in the back of your mind as a more, more current example or issue as we're approaching this because he's going to talk about um, authority and submission and yet he's going to say some things about um, things that women do in the church. And on one side, it seems like he's over here with the, with the conservatives and the Southern Baptists. And on the other side, he seems like he's over here with Saddleback Church. Why can't women do these things? So let's press forward. Okay. Now, um, 1A um, is, is, is the same as the previous now concerning. It's pointing to this. They had asked him a question. And what's kind of fun to, to work, to press your understanding of the, of, of the paragraph how would you word what question they asked? Because we don't get the question, we only get the answer, right? 
And some are a little more obvious than others, like what should we do with this? Well, actually, they didn't ask the question about the, about the uh, man who was in sin in chapter 5. They asked questions about marriage, and some of those are a little easier to, to, to push into. What questions did they ask that he answers? Here, that'd be, that'd be a good exercise. Do I really understand this? What question do we think is actually being asked? Okay. He's responding to another. Now, he commends them, first of all, in 1b. Paul commends the Corinthians for holding to many good traditions. And it says there, to start his following rebuke on a positive note, I, I, I think rebuke's too strong. I, I would say, rather, his correction. He's, he's, he's giving some correction here. It's not an out-and-out rebuke. You're doing this wrong. Stop that and start doing this. It's more he's, he's, he's making an adjustment on their perspective with this explaining why certain traditions are important and they should continue them. And tradition is not simply something... When you think of tradition, what do you think of? When you think of a tradition, a tradition in the church. This is one of our traditions. What does that mean to you? Something we've done for a long time. Okay. And we've, we've always done it this way. Yeah. That would be, this is the traditional way of doing it. We, the way we've always done it. Okay. Is that a negative thing? Is, that, is tradition as compared to biblical? Are those opposite of each other? They might be. They might be, but not necessarily. So when Paul's talking about tradition, he's talking about handed down patterns, and these would be handed down patterns from the apostles. This is what Paul has told in all the churches. Look at verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, want to argue about this further, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So this is our practice that we've handed down in the churches, and he commends them for continuing these practices or these traditions. So tradition isn't bad, except when it contradicts or leads away from Scripture. Tradition shouldn't be the only reason that we do something. We, we have that tradition because that tradition, tradition flows out of an understanding of Scripture. So when should traditions if, well, if, for instance, um, well, the Catholic Church would be a great example of this because the Catholic Church is full of tradition that, um, that traditions have, have uh, taken the place of Scripture. And the church tradition and teaching is actually formally elevated above Scripture. What Scripture says is not nearly as important as the traditional ways in which the Catholic Church has interpreted that Scripture. So tradition is over Scripture. In the, in the Jewish religion, Jesus confronts that in the first century when he says, you have taken the commandments of God and replaced them with the traditions of men. So tradition can be a bad thing, where you're now doing what seems right to you instead of doing what God's Word says. Does that make sense? Okay. So does that mean that like, hats in church, like with guys, that, that might eventually Yeah, unless unless is there is there a bigger is there a bigger spiritual reality? I want to wear my hat, my rights, yeah. 
But is there a bigger spirituality that would tell me to keep that tradition, keep that practice as has been done, because actually there's some value in it? It, it might relate to where you're at and it also might relate to it, maybe there's a different way that a different thing that conveys that now. For instance, in the first, in the first century and in different places in the world today, in the Middle East for instance, you don't necessarily wear a whole head covering where only your eyes peek out, ladies, but you typically would have some sort of a scarf or something that loops around the neck and goes up over the hair. It doesn't cover all the hair. Like in, like in some cultures, don't show any hair at all, ladies. All of your hair should be covered, but, but in a lot of places in the Middle East, it's just having a cloth over your hair as well, even though your hair can be seen under the cloth and out of the cloth and so on, but it's a symbol of something. It's representing an attitude. In a brethren church, where they do take this very literally, a woman should have a covering in church when she's praying and worshiping. She should have a head covering, and so they have these very nice little lace doilies, other people call them. But it's a lace head covering that they'll wear outside of the church, they, they have it on their shoulders. But when they come into the church and the service starts, they all, almost in unison, they'll take them and they lift them up over their head. And what they're doing is they're honoring this scripture in that manner. And that's exactly what that means within that, that little subculture. Now, that's not our subculture, and it doesn't, wouldn't convey anything other than, oh, that's an interesting religious tradition you have there. It wouldn't convey anything outwardly in our culture at large. So that's part of what's at play in the first half of chapter 11, is there's meaning in the culture that he's going to refer to. And there's some things that are not just your immediate culture, but seem to transcend culture. And he'll point to some of those. Let's see if we can pick out some of those. Okay, so he, he, he commends them for holding traditions. We talked a little about traditions. And that marriage roles are one aspect of submission found in God's order. So he talks in verse 3. This is a tricky verse. This can get us into trouble. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ that no man is autonomous. See, there's a misunderstanding about, about authority within, within the home that says the man is king of the castle and the, his, his wife is to be subject to him and submitted to him and so on. Well, it doesn't say that here. Every man is submitted to Christ. Paul unpacks what he means by that further elsewhere. Ephesians chapter 5. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So if Christ is our head and we in submission to him follow his example, we live out chapter 2 and verse 2 in relation to our wife in marriage. So it's not this king of the castle, first of all. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Even within the Godhead there is this difference of roles. There is, there is authority and there is submission. Jesus only did those things which please the Father. You think Jesus ever woke up, woke up one day and say, Come on, what is this? I'm just as much God as He is. I mean, I'm the second person of the Trinity here. I'm the Son. I'm the eternal Son. Why is it that I always do those things that please the Father? Why can't I do something that pleases me for a change? You think Jesus ever woke up and said that? What do you think, Steve? 
Satan did. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. The one who has, in the biblical story, the one who has trouble with authority, even though he's way up on the food chain, the one who has a, a trouble with authority is Satan. Yeah. But within the Godhead, there is, there is harmony and oneness of, uh, of purpose and, and, and unhindered fellowship together between Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet, there is a delegated authority and submission within the Godhead. And that, that's where he starts. If we're going to get this right in human relationships, that flows out of what does it look like in God's relationship. Because we are created in his image. Male and female, we are created in the image, singular, of God. We are not created male and female in the images, the feminine and masculine images of God, but male and female, we reflect the image of God. So it's complex. Are we fully confused? Yeah. Great, I can go on then. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I think it's kind of interesting. Here he talks about how the wife is um, kind of under, you know, the head of the, the head of a wife is her husband. husband. Uh huh. And, you know, we've also heard Paul say, you know, if you can avoid getting married, avoid them. You know, <laughs> do that. <laughs> yeah, he said, don't don't get married. It's a lot of trouble. <laughs> That's what Paul. Not saying that for men's benefit. Yes. And for women as yeah, well. yeah. Right? To be wholly devoted to the Lord. So yeah. Kind of a holy singleness. You have to understand that when you get married, you're then saying, I'm going to take the. There, I'm basically allowing someone to kind of be the head of me, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you're serve, not serve a role, because it's the, Sarah, but you're taking on a role of, <laughs> you know, you're, you're basically inheriting, a, not a boss, but, you know, the head. You're, yeah, yeah. And so if so, you don't get married, if you can avoid that, you're then not going to have that... And when Paul said in chapter 7 that the, the, married, the married woman, the wife, should, um, is... Um, considering how she should please her husband. And he doesn't say that's, that's a problem, she shouldn't be doing that. And yet at the same time he also says that those who have wives as if they had none, that, that we need to recognize a higher priority in these end days. And yet we still have those responsibilities. And the, 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 the man who has a wife is concerned about those things that he should do for his wife, how he shall please his wife. That doesn't mean he's henpecked. It means he recognizes a responsibility that he has. And it's another responsibility that is going to limit his availability. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that's a great... Though, though there's headship, there's, there's a shared responsibility that each have then now toward and for the other. Good balance. Okay? And all of that's got to fit together. When you think about Paul's view of women, all of these different passages have to harmonize together because Paul is not schizophrenic here. Okay. Let's see, where are we at now? Let's see. Uh, da, da, da. Verse 4 then. Come down to verses 4 to 10. So he establishes just some principles. First of all, there's spiritual equality in Christ. See, that's one of the issues. That's one of the new things with the church. There's neither bond nor, f nor free. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. That's one of the new things of the church that wasn't true in Judaism. In Judaism, if you went to Jerusalem and you go to the temple, what would you find there on the, on the, on the temple mount? You go through the beautiful gate and you come up the stairs and you pop up onto the, into the daylight in the, in the temple courts there up on top of the platform. And it's all beautiful and wonderful. And there's these different courts, right? 
This is the court of the Gentiles, which is the most outer one, the court of the nations, that makes the temple also a house of prayer for all nations. And then you come a little bit further, and what's the next court that you could enter? It was the court of the women. And then you get a little closer, and you have the court of the men. The men could get closer to the temple itself than the women could. There was a distinction. You would not say that, that um, there's no difference between Jew or, 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 or Greek. You would not say there's no difference between male or female under Judaism. But in Christianity, you would. There, is, there has been a, 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 a difference. There has been a complete new development. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. That's actually Old Testament predicted. Okay, so in the midst of that, however, even though there is a spiritual equality, there are, that does not eliminate gender distinctions in roles and functions. Okay, 4 to 10. How we present ourselves in church participation should convey godly submission in culturally appropriate as well as timeless ways. There are ways that change and vary with culture, and there are certain things that are transcultural, that seem timeless, that carry on from one society through another, even if there's some shift and changes along the way. For instance, who has longer hair, men or women? women? It's not a difficult question. Now there, the, there are exceptions, but don't the exceptions make the rule? Why was it that men wore their hair long in the late 60s, early 70s? Rebelling. Because they were rebelling against the norm. Yes. Yes, they were making a statement by going against the norm. And it wasn't just a, a, a 40s and 50s norm. It was much longer than that. Through church history, you look, at, you look at statues of people from the first century. Who had long hair? Who had short hair? Men had short hair. Women had long hair. And that hasn't really changed. It does depend. Yeah. But the exception kind of proves the rule. And, and that's not just in Western society. Uh, that's, that, that, that's true around the world. It's, it's a norm. Now, it, okay, it, there, there's exceptions to it, but it's, it seems to be uh, um, something that, that's universally understood in the Greco-Roman world as well, because Paul's going to call upon it. Um, under A, men who pray or declare revelation publicly, um, pray or prophesy, is the word that's used, with, head, with a head covering, shame Christ as their head. That's an interesting statement. Men shouldn't have their head covered. And what does he mean by that? Does that mean long hair? Or does that mean a hat? Like a ball cap. Take that ball cap off and we pray. Like we do. Or does that mean that men shouldn't have long hair when they pray? Well, we'll see as we go. But I'll throw that out there. The... Um, um, but he, but he makes that statement as if everybody understands that. Now, how's that different from Judaism? What does a Jewish man put on his head when he prays? You put the yarmulke on. You put this little little skull cap on. In fact, you cannot go to the Western Wall in Jerusalem if you didn't bring your own yarmulke. They will give you one. You cannot go to the Western Wall, which is the place of prayer for an Orthodox Jewish person in Israel if you don't have, if, if you don't have a, co a covering on your head. 
Judaism you had to have but was Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about Moses Moses veiled his face but we all with unveiled faces behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord that the the covering the veil has been taken away in Christ and so Whereas we, 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 were, we, were, we had a covering over us in, in daring to approach God, now humanity pulls the cover away. And in a sense, what Paul's saying, and what he unpacks further in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, is that we have a face-to-face approach to God. Okay, we say, well, what about the women then? Why can't women pray that way as well? It's a question. We'll keep going with it. So, so he's making a revolutionary statement. It's a departure from Judaism, and yet it's culturally true that men have, have, have shorter hair. He's going to point out for the same reason. So there's verse 4. But, verse 5, every wife who prays or prophesies, prophesies, and it doesn't say every woman, but it says every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. If a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. Cut her hair short, actually, the word there is to basically get a clipper cut. That's what's being referred to here. So, shave, shave your head or cut it real, real short like a military haircut. Um, that's what's being described there. Since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So he's, he's, he's starting with some, some illustrations out of the culture that they would recognize and affirm. Everybody knows this, that a wife... Sh- that, 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 that a wife and it's different a wife from a woman. It's not an issue of male or female. It's what's different about a wife from a single woman? What's different between a wife and a single woman? She has a husband. Okay, so she has she has she's entered into a relationship where she has um, yielded herself to a head in that relationship. Okay, so, so she has put herself in submission to, which is one of the reasons, historically, I think, in Western culture, the wife takes the husband's name, joins his family, she has yielded herself to him. And that's another way that that is expressed. It doesn't mean that she's any left, it's less, it's not a matter of equality, it's, it's um, just an expression of that principle. The, the, it, it's not a women inferior to men principle, why? Because it's wives. This is about wives or married women because they need to preserve a way of communicating to others the right submission that they give to their own husbands. Is that married woman to be in submission to any man? No. No. Submission is always talked about to, in fact, Ephesians, he makes that even more clear, to her own husband. Not just to any old husband. Yeah. So it's, 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 again, it's a matter of the marriage relationship. It's not an issue of equality of gender, or inequality of gender, I should say. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's preserving a, a, a um, order that God has put in marriage, which is meant to reflect something about order even in the Trinity itself. And so to preserve that, God preserves this in our marriage relationship also. Okay, so it's not about gender, it's about a married relationship. And in that, um, there's this symbol of 
of uh, authority. So is she not supposed to pray with her head uncovered? Does she not have the same access before God, that free access with no hindrance that Paul says that Christians now have, that we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord? Does the wife not have the same? There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female. There's There's a spiritual equality. Can she pray at other times, not publicly before the church, without a covering on her head? It seems to be that here he's talking about in the church. He's talking about public prayer or the declaration of a revelation from God. The publicly in the church, is she supposed to be showing that she's a woman now, so she really shouldn't be doing this, so she's going to put something on her head in order that everybody knows that she's a woman and not a man. Is that the purpose of the head covering? Whatever the head covering is? Julie's saying, no, that doesn't seem right. She, what he's saying here is she dishonors her head, her husband. The head of a wife is her husband, it said back in verse 3. So she is, what she's doing, she's, she's doing what in the culture is recognized, and there are still today, in, in Swazi culture, this is a little different, in Swazi culture, a woman must wear a top when she's married. Other men are not allowed to see her breasts if she's married. Well, gee, that also head covering. Well, gee, that makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? And that ought to be the norm, but it is not completely unusual. In fact, there's a certain festival every year in Swaziland where the young maidens parade d- down across the streets and, and, um, and byways of the country collecting reeds topless. It's a strange thing, but the Swazi culture recognizes a married woman from a single woman, and a married woman would never do that because now she's committed herself to one man. And she also now covers her head, typically, where an unmarried woman or a young, a young lady that's not yet married, she doesn't cover her head, she doesn't wear a scarf on her head, but all the married women do. That's recognized that she's showing she's not available to others. She's submitted, she's committed herself to one man. It's kind of like we wear a wedding ring. The same thing. Or a very similar thing. Okay? So what's going on here is if she doesn't take that culturally recognized symbol of submission and commitment to her husband, she's shaming him before the rest of the church before the rest of the culture at large. That she is on her own, she's going to do her own thing, she is not concerned about what her husband thinks or says. And especially think about it, if she's a Christian woman who is married to a not believing, or shall I say not yet believing man. We've already dealt with that in in chapter 7. And if he's an unbeliever, it's all the more important how she relates to him even as she lives out her faith that she does that with respect and honor of him even as she lives out her faith in honor and worship to the Lord. So that, those dynamics are all at play here. And so when we read this, okay, 
If a, if a wife will not cover her head, she, would, she should might as well cut her, her hair short, which was shameful in the culture. And what was, it was done to somebody who was caught in adultery. Um, some, some records indicate that temple prostitutes had short hair. Others say, ah, oh, we don't know that for sure. Maybe we're reading that into it. But clearly within the culture, it's recognized for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head was shame. It, it, it brought shame upon her that her her hair was given to her for a covering. It was it was a glory for her. Even as a man ought not to cover his head, verse seven, since he's the image and glory of God, the woman is the glory of man. I'm not sure what all that means in verse seven. But but. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, sure exactly what Paul's getting out there beyond this willing submission, which, in a sense, is her yielding herself, and in some ways there's a building up of her husband. You could say there's a, there's a, um, there's a deference to the male ego. Not in a negative way that he's so fragile, you know, and his pride is a man that we need to build him up a little bit, but that she's honoring him, she's respecting him in ways that lift him up and honor him before others. Even as practical advice that I'll give in, in premarital counseling, don't ever speak negatively of your spouse to others. Honor them before others instead. And, and as she portrays this, she is honoring and lifting up, esteeming in the eyes of others her husband. That's good for the family, that's good for her, it's the right thing to do. Even as we would as the church honor, esteem, and lift up before others. Um, enhance the honor of our God before others in this parallel relationship between Christ and the church. Okay, now a man ought not to cover his head. He's different from women. He is the image of the glory of God. The woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from a woman, but woman from man. Oh, well now we've brought in creation order. So this is not just a cultural thing. If you're in a culture where they esteem women above men, then that's okay. God's created order is where this headship thing comes from. That's verse 8. Neither was man created for woman, but woman was created for man. Is that true, or is Paul just getting a little, um, um, a, a little chauvinistic here? Women was created for man. What's he referring to? Genesis. I will make a help meet suitable for you. A compliment for you. It is not good for you to be alone, buddy. You're going to be a mess. I'm going I'm to compliment you with the one that you need. Okay, so woman was made for man. Okay. Uh, but verse 10, that's why a wife ought to have some symbol of authority overhead, because of the angels. Okay, so what we've said so far, how we present ourselves in church conveys godly submission in a culturally appropriate and yet timeless way. Culturally appropriate, a woman covering her head when she's married was understood in Corinth. It was understood in the Roman world. Uh, understand that other places like that even today in the Muslim world for instance in Africa other places not a big deal wearing hats in church anymore for instance not a big deal in America um, however in America uh, there's still something about um, hairstyles to some extent not as big a deal as it used to be but it's still out there longer hair versus shorter hair 
Um, but the, the, the principle so far though is there's an honoring that's appropriate in ways that are conveyed by the culture, that are understood in the culture. And there's a timeless aspect to that because this is based in creation order. That's why I say there's a timeless aspect to it, verses 9 and 10. Now we get to the but, verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For, verse 12, as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. So Eve comes from Adam's rib. And ever since, women have not been born out of something from man, but rather men have been born out of women. So by pointing that out, it's kind of an obvious thing. Every baby comes from a, from a mom, not a dad. I know there's a lot of confusion about that today and birthing people, but there it is. And it's still that way. That's basic biology. Nature, verse 14, nature teaches us this. There's a new equality in the new creation between men and women. Verse 11, nevertheless, it's a yeah, but. There is this headship in created order that should be portrayed by the church. The church should be very countercultural in some ways. The church should be revolutionary in some ways. The church should, as was said in the first century, turn the world upside down or right side up. But in other ways, it should, in a sense, restore God's norm in a world that is rebelling against it. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, man of woman. Okay. Woman came from man, yet man also comes from woman. We all. In Second in Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, We all with unveiled faces. Behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. He doesn't say we men. He doesn't say we husbands. He says we all. So that reality is true of all Christianity. There's a, there's a spiritual equality. The other reference I have here, Joel chapter 2. We should go there. This is fun. Well, on nature thing, going back to that a little bit. Uh-huh. Men go men go ball, women not very seldom. I mean, there are yeah, 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 yeah. It's much more normal. It's, uh, thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. It's happening. Hair. I mean, yeah. James Taylor had this long hair. Uh huh. Uh huh. You know. For a while. <laughs> I don't know if that plays in, but in, if we're talking about nature, that is yeah. the, yeah. the way it works. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't put marble tops on cheap furniture, right? <laughs> so, an interesting aspect that. But, but Joel chapter 2, verse 28. It shall come to pass afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And who will prophesy? Your sons and your daughters. Your, your old men, your young men, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. So one of the things, one of the balance that comes is Paul does not limit prayer and prophecy. Now what do we mean by prophecy? Certainly it is declaring God's revelation. 
Uh, it would clearly include the reading of scripture in the church and praying would also include public praying within the church but in some way that still conveys a, a that that woman is a is a woman in a submissive relationship with her own husband uh, that in uh, how do you convey that today in ways that the culture culture um, would recognize I don't know because our culture is confused but there's a reality there that that we do need to certainly part of the aspect part of the aspect of of, of women's head hair being uncovered and you see this in cultures even today is it's a modesty issue to see her hair complete and let down is is a, uh, is an attraction it can be a sensual thing and so modesty is to is to cover her hair at least and, and it varies culture by culture how much some cultures to see any of her hair is just really too much other cultures just having something that shows that she's aware of that and she's conveying sorry guys my hair is off limits my hair is my husband's uh, my glory is for him is a way is the way that that is being conveyed and uh, all else that that means but it doesn't mean that she's different in the sense of spiritual blessing and how then can she function within the church there there can be a lot of attention given to what things should a should women not do in the church and I think the other side of that is we should be asking and we should be very open to what are things that women should be allowed to do and are there things that tradition is keeping us for instance in churches like ours it's very typical that anybody who says anything publicly on the platform will be a, 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 a man instead of a woman it's very typical that the ushers for instance would be men instead of women even on our welcome team more men than women? Yeah. Probably. Okay. And serving of the Lord's table. Men or women? More men. Okay. More women. In fact, almost predominantly men. One, the, the, we were. We were. And yet it easily slipped away again. And, and, and the first time that it was ever done, a woman joined communion, was when uh, there was somebody, one side was short one person, and so the pastor from up front, just before I came here, but I heard the story, the, the pastor from up front signaled somebody and, and motioned them to come forward and help. And a woman sitting in front of somebody else thought he was pointing to her. Me? He says, yeah, because apparently the, the, the guy behind her did the same thing, and me, and he said, yeah. And so she got up and, and, and joined. It's like, Okay, <laughs> and they went with it, and the church didn't fall down, you know, nothing terrible happened. <laughs> but is there anything in Scripture that would tell us that a woman shouldn't serve the Lord's table in the church? Shouldn't be one of those receiving the offering in the church? And, and on we could go. Shouldn't um, lead, lead in congregational prayer? Shouldn't uh, do the Scripture reading? Those are things we do, like from the worship team. But, but we have a lot of habits out of custom and tradition. This would go back to your question, Tom, that sometimes our traditions are formed um, and yet not fully informed by Scripture. And it's, um, my understanding is the one, the one role and position that would be reserved for, for, um, for men in the church is elders 
or pastors who are elders. Now we have this thing in our church where our associate pastors are not elders. But we understand that that word pastor, and this is where the Southern Baptist Convention gets hung up, and I, th I think they're on the right track with this, that pastors are, a pastor is the, uh, is the function which is done by overseers, is the office, think overseer or bishop, who are elders. They are elder, that's their characteristic. They are spiritually elder, they are mature, and they hold an office of an overseer, a spiritual overseer of others in the, in the church family or, or congregation, and they do perform the role or function of shepherding others. Pastor means shepherding. So those three words, pastor, elder, and bishop or overseer, those three words in the New Testament are used interchangeably. And the qualifications of elders, they're clearly, uh, it's a male role, and um, to be the husband of one wife, and so on. So that's where we would arrive at, well, pastors should be men. And uh, there's a couple other places I'd go, but it'd be probably beyond the scope of 1 Corinthians 11. Do you have a question, Tom, or a comment there? Okay, so you're, you're an elder? Yes. Yes. But Pastor Evan and Pastor Ryan are not elders. Pastor Evan and Pastor Ryan, according to our church structure, are not elders. So, but they in the office of elder, but they are pastors of the church and they they attend every elder meeting as advisors to the elder board. So in the chain of command they're Yes, yes, they, they, they report to me and they also report to the elders. Yes, yes. And that's just, that was just a, a, a polity decision that was made for our church that, that you can go either way. You, you, um, when I came to Brush Prairie, we had some of the associate pastors were elders on the elder board who attended the meetings as elders, and they voted as elders on the elder board, and, or had a vote. Um, decisions done among our elder board are normally unanimous. Or we come to an agreement together, or we keep seeking. The, but the, um, um, other, the other two associate pastors were not elders, and so did not attend elder meetings, didn't even know what went on at the elder meetings, what was talked about there. So you had this inequality uh, this differing levels among the associate uh, associate pastors that created tensions among them, and um, the the common advice out there for a for a church is for your associate pastors either they're all elders or they're not elders, and uh, in some churches the pastor is not an elder as, as well. Only that you have the lay elder board and all the pastors are hired staff that answer to the elders. And in our church, the, um, the, the lead pastor or the senior pastor is, cons is automatically, by his office, one of the elders. So I'm the only elder that doesn't have an expiration of my term. Unless the church decides I do. <laughs> every, every, every month of me and I come home tells you I still have a job. <laughs> still an elder, still a pastor. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. My office log hasn't been changed. The, the, um, but, but all that to go back to is that one of the things he points out here at the end is there's a new equality, but it's understood within human social norms that we can see and judge for ourselves. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. 
come out of the Lord's pouring his spirit out on all and yet we come back to 1 Corinthians 11 and 13 and 14 judge for yourself is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered does nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair it's a disgrace for him uh oh if a man wears long hair it's a disgrace for him that's unusual but if a woman has long hair it is her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering a lot of people, even in terms of, okay, how do I do this covering thing today? Her hair is given for, I don't need to pull up a, um, a, a embroidered shawl over my head when I'm in church because her hair is given to her for a covering. But is this submission to her own husband displayed in ways that are recognizable to others? One of the things I would say is, is when you have a woman who is who is um, apparently not in, sub in healthy submission in a healthy relationship with her own husband, that is not a woman who should be leading in the church because it looks like a broader usurp uh, usurping of authority. Um, now what exactly that looks like, it may be kind of hard to nail down, it's the, but it's the kind of thing you know it when you see it. That's a little ambiguous. But I'm not sure exactly in the shifts of style and norms in our culture today, I'm not sure any longer how to definitively say what clearly. Um, there's a norm here that whether our, our culture recognizes it still or not, there's a norm of men have shorter hair, women have longer hair. What's short versus what's long? I'm not going to Bob Jones you. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that. that. That would be silly to try to define. Um, any other thoughts or questions there? On that first topic before we move on with the little time that's left. That's the stickier one, certainly, in 1 Corinthians 11. So I, I, that's why I want to spend more time on it. And we have a longer page, page of notes. The new equality of the new creation is not be practiced in ways that would be dismissive of God's order and creation among humans or to angels. Verse 16 is interesting. Um, where's the angels? There, there's an angel piece in here. Where is it? Ten. Oh, verse 10. All the way back there, yes. A symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That angels observe the church. Now, do angels ever have issues of submission to authority? They do. There are those angels mentioned in Jude that left their first estate. So there, this is an issue for angels. Satan is, a, is the best example. He was the day star, the son of the morning, a, a morning star, and yet he, he fell from his exalted place in rebellion against God. I will put myself above the Most High, he said. And he was cast down from there. So angels have seen rebellion against God's created order. And so even as angels learn about God's mercy and God's forgiveness and God's restorative grace, they learn that by watching the church. They also learn from the church these self-centered, remember the, the essence of the fall is self-centeredness. And when angels see self-centered humans yielding themselves to one another, to yield their rights or their self-autonomy, their authority over themselves, to yield that in trust to another, in a way that illustrates as well humanity's 
yielding of our supposed self-autonomy to our God in a way that angels also submit themselves to their God and Creator. Angels learn that from watching us, or they should. There is a, to go back to chapter 10, there's a bigger spiritual reality. It's not just about my own fulfillment in the role that I want to take, or the recognition that I should have. Am I willing to yield that for the sake of others? Yes, Steve? Uh, is that where Genesis 3.16 would come into play, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's kind of a curse. A lot of people understand that, that your desire shall be for him in the sense of position, yeah. Wanting to take his position of authority. You see that, for instance, in a Jezebel and Ahab. There's a, there's a, there's a, um, a who's, who's really in charge there? And uh, yeah, that, that's, that's a way that, that that verse is understood. And it's not just the language of the verse itself, but there's a, there's a stream you can then trace that through, through Scripture. Right. Kind of made think about it because of the angels. Um, and so there was something that happened to the fall. And yeah. The angels mm-hmm. feel that fall was there too. Yeah, yeah. If there hadn't been the fall, if, there, if it wasn't for sin, marriage would be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? But uh, now, now both sides of that are a problem. The, um, um, the, 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 the wife may turn that, that loving, trusting submission into a power play and, and, a, and a taking of authority over, over her husband, and that'll cause problems. And the husband also might turn that headship, which is to be a Christ kind of headship, a giving of oneself for the other, he may turn that authority into domineering. And that commonly plays out in the, in the non-Christian world. Whether it's cult- cultures at large or individual, individual families, but that commonly happens as well. And so the, um, the um, twisting or perverting of God's normal order of submission and creation, it can occur from both sides. And we men ought to be very careful about the domineering side the lording it over side because that's that's our responsibility and that's what Paul addresses in Ephesians 5 okay let's turn the page to the back of the page the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper is to be celebrated in a way that portrays the gospel of sacrificial grace toward others now what's happening here is they have been having the Lord's table as a church dinner is there anything wrong with it was common it's been described in the first century they would have what they called excuse me what they called a love feast where they would have a, 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 a just a think of a good this is one of the places we get our church dinners a good old Baptist potluck from uh, a sharing together sharing a meal together bringing food and sharing it together with others And then at the end of that, even as Jesus did at the Last Supper, they had a Passover banquet. And then with the banquet, they also, he he reinterpreted parts of that Passover dinner and said, this bread, this unleavened bread, this pierced and striped bread is representative of my body, which is given for you. This cup, This cup of redemption at that point in the meal 
that, that, that cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So he takes the Passover banquet and he reinterprets it. They're having a normal meal, and then there's this, these aspects of the bread and the cup that Jesus pulls out of that meal. And so the church continued to do that. Let's have a meal, and with the meal, let's have the Lord's table. Problem with that? It could be. It could be. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And what happened in the, in the church at Corinth is it wasn't so much a potluck where everybody brought and shared. It was a, it was a brown bag. It was a bring your own lunch and you know, let's eat together. And some people had plenty to bring. Some people brought a picnic party. And other people had nothing. Or almost nothing. Scraps. Leftovers that maybe they scavenged out of the garbage somewhere. That was the, the wide range in the church between rich and poor. But it wasn't a sharing together. It was each bringing for themselves and for their own. And so some had plenty and some had nothing. So now this is the table where you're going to celebrate the, the, the Lord's Supper. You're going to celebrate his sacrifice for you at a table where we are not all sharing together in his goodness. Some have plenty and some have nothing. And now we've twisted it. We've turned it into a, a, a time of haves and haves not. One goes hungry while another gets drunk, he says. So with that background, that's his instruction into the table. Okay, now let's read it again. In the following instruction, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for better or for worse. Remember in the last section, in, in, in verse 2, he commended them for keeping traditions, and let's, let's just talk about it a little bit more, let's unpack that. Here he's not commending them at all. He says, you guys are missing it here, and this is important. Because you come together, it's not for better, but for worse. Your, your shared meal has, is damaging the church rather than building up the church. In the first place, when you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. There must be factions. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Okay, now here Paul, Paul spent four chapters trying to pull the church back together in unity, and now he says there must be factions. I believe there's divisions among you because there must be factions. Now there's a couple of different words here. The divisions from the following verses seem to be economic. The church divides into cliques among social economic lines, the more wealthy versus the poor. We're going to see that as we go further. Um, like in verse 22. Do you have not houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? There are some who have plenty, some have nothing. And so he will not commend them in that. There must be factions among you. What does he mean by that? That word in the book of Acts refers to different sects within Judaism. There are Sadducees, and there are Pharisees, and there are Christians. The Christians were considered another sect or another faction within Judaism. 
So there's different perspectives in the church, and I expect that some people get it more than others. There, there are those that are still holding to, for instance, trying to Jewish believers that are trying to impose law upon Gentiles. There's some of that still swirling around the church, and there's going to be factions in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. What does he mean by those who are genuine? I mean, some of them are true Christians and the others are not? I don't think it's to that extreme. But there are some who are, are understanding the unique differences of the Christian faith as compared to Judaism more fully and rightly than others. Some are swerving then out of a background. Remember, remember, Christianity is born out of the synagogue. Even in Corinth, Paul starts in the synagogue, and then others leave the synagogue and follow him in his teaching at the hall of the tyrant, uh, the hall of Tyrannus. Okay, so um, there's a Jewish background there, and some of them still hold to things from the law and bring those with them into the church, while others cut loose completely and said, man, freed from the law, wonderful, now we can go do whatever we want. And Paul says, no, 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 now you can go do everything he wants, not whatever we want. Some, some turn toward legalism, others turn to liberty or licentiousness where the balance actually would be Christian liberty in submission to Christ. So liberty can, can be, can be um, devolve into legalism, trying to keep the rules. It can express itself in an anti-law licentiousness that does whatever I want to because it doesn't really matter. We're not under the law. So there's these differences swirling among Christians. And the genuine are that which has been approved through testing. You find the same word, uh, whether noun or verb form of it, in James chapter uh, 1, verse 12. You find it used concerning the Corinthians in chapter 2 and verse 9. I could turn to a couple of these. Let me scoot over. Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 9. What does that say? This is why I wrote that I might test you to see whether you are obedient. And, and Paul's purpose there, testing, that I might prove you. That to be approved, to be shown genuine, was to be tested for the purpose of approving. Let's say you're given a, go a gold ring. You take it to the jeweler. Is this really gold? And he tested. And you're hoping to find out that it is the genuine thing. And the testing, the proving, proves that it really is. So that's this concept of proving. The, 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 um, the testing of your faith by trials is, is the way that James refers to it. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, Paul's proven worth. He's been proven, he's been tested, he's been found to be genuine. As a son with his father, he has served faithfully. Whoever serves God is a uh, serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men, shown to be sincere and genuine in their faith, that their faith is right and true. So there's a there's a maturing among them that that, that genuine is referring to. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. This party that you're having, this party with parties among it, this is not the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a shared together in the grace of Christ for us. This is not portraying that. 
in eating each one of you goes ahead with his own meal now how is each one of you going ahead with his own meal how is that contrary to the Lord's Supper Okay, not sharing or rather even not giving what you could enjoy for yourself, giving that to others so that they could have instead. That's what Jesus did. There's the essence of the Lord's Supper. Him giving of himself for us. So again, Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 comes right into play here. One goes hungry while another is so indulging that he gets drunk. You obviously got wine to share with the others. Don't you have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Shame them, pointing out their poverty in the midst of your abundance. I cannot con- commend you in this. I will not. He's, he he con- concludes in verse 22. So this is a serious deal. The Lord's table has become a religious banquet where different ones enjoy what they have. And there's a division of rich and poor. This is far removed from the original purpose. Remember in John chapter 13, the establishment of the Lord's table, what does Jesus do there? He clothes himself like a servant, and he washes the disciples' feet. The one who is the greatest among them serves them as the least. That's what should be happening in the church, and it's not. So this is a correction of Lord's table, and yet we could apply this in a lot of different directions. What are the places where in church I want what I want? I want to assert my preferences. And I want this to please me rather than what's really best for others. There's all kinds of ways we could ask that question, and, and, we, and, and we rightly should. So now he reminds them of what the table was really about, and he's quoting right out of Luke's Gospel here. Um, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it. This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me or do this remembering me. So when you celebrate the Lord's table, it should remind us of Jesus who gave himself for us. We proclaim the Lord's death for us until he comes. Verse 26. So this little recounting of that declaration by Jesus of what this table was all about, the bread and the cup, is in contrast to their self-indulgence. It's not just, this is the formula to say every time. But now let's unpack for a minute. We celebrate the Lord's table, as most churches do, not casually around a shared dinner together, but we normally do that. We could do it in a shared dinner, but we normally do it in the midst of a worship service where we just put the focus on the bread and the cup, his body given for us, his blood in his life poured out for us. Why do we do that? It's an intentional decision that's been made along the way with the church that let's remove other potential distractions, things that would make it about our indulging, and let's instead do it in a way that remembers his sacrifice. Maybe that's why the cups are so little. (laughs) Nobody's getting drunk here. (laughs) But it's a matter of we're remembering his sacrifice. That's the point. Uh-huh. 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 It's all about this honoring what 
Yeah. 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 We honor the Lord by honoring one another. We honor His giving of Himself for us by giving of ourselves for others. One of the reasons we say knowing and following Jesus by helping others to know and follow Jesus. By giving of ourselves, by giving what we have for the sake of others. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, a, there's, there's again the center here, yielding our rights for honoring others. That's the bigger spiritual reality here. That this, this partaking together is meant to remind us of sacrifice, not of indulgence. So by, by what could have been a wonderful fellowship meal together, they ended up turning the Lord's table on its head, didn't they? They turned it upside down. They made it something absolute opposite of what it was supposed to be about. Yeah? I've been to some churches where they practice communion every week. Sure. In fact, that's the brethren tradition. That's the brethren mm -hmm. tradition. Mm -hmm. As you look at it, you know, I'm not going to take either side, but some of them hold it up in an honor. We do it every week. Mm. We, you know, yeah, yeah, so you can, yeah. You can use that yeah. as instead of doing it because... Yeah. Well, you can tell them. You can tell them so do the Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> That'll go over real well with brethren folk. <laughs> but yeah, that can, you can fall into that where we come Yes, yes, yeah, the, yeah. Almost a ritual, yeah. or at least a pride thing. We do this. Which again, in understanding this and what it's supposed to remember us, we could. How often should we celebrate the Lord's table? How often should we do it? Once a month. Well, that's our tradition. <laughs> that's our tradition. Here we go again with that tradition. <laughs> okay. How sh how often should we? Is there any biblical precedent? I mean, if it says, do this in remembrance in me, it's mainly you'd say, well, you do it enough so they don't forget about it. Okay, okay, you, all right. People would be like, I don't have no recollection of this. What's that thing you're doing there? What? <laughs> okay. Well, where's it come from? Passover. It comes from Passover. So there's a pattern. We should do it at least once a year. Yeah. We could do it every, every Sunday when we come together. We're not told that we must. We could, and some do, and that's wonderful. Um, so, and churches like ours have seemed to typically land on once a month or once a quarter. What balance are they? They could have done every year. Why month, once a month or once a quarter? Why? What do you think the reason for that is? Some people might miss that once a year. Okay, okay. Yeah, do, do it a little more often to remind us and yet, don't do it too frequently that it becomes boilerplate. That we don't pay attention to it anymore. That we lose the meaning. The whole purpose here is he's trying to remind them of the meaning. And, they, and when we do that, it's supposed to remind us of something. So, if it's, if it's supposed to remind us of that, then there's some suggestion that it shouldn't be too regular and routine. So, there's a balance. And some churches, like I said, we're monthly, some are quarterly. I can't say it should be this way or that way, but we choose. And is, is this, it, it ought to be now and again we evaluate and say, is it meeting 
Is it, is it doing what it's intended to do? And why he, Christ gave this to the church to continue doing this? Is it, is it accomplishing that end or do we need to change something? Let's see. Our time's gone. So, um, uh, uh, and we go to verse 27. Losing the message of the bread and the cup is a large, in a larger indulgent banquet will bring the Lord's judgment. Doing it wrong, and I think here, verse 29, this is an important piece. Verse 29, who, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. There are two lines of thought here. Does the body there mean, do you wrongly understand that, how this is Christ's body? Or does body there refer to the body of Christ among whom you are sharing this? Because different churches understand what Jesus said by this is my body given for you. They understand that differently. Luther held that somehow that actually becomes the real literal flesh of Jesus. And that's also the Catholic position. That at the blessing by the priest, it, is, it actually becomes the actual, actual body of the flesh of Christ that we partake of. Um, there's other theological problems with that. It's, 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 it's a perpetuation of the, of the sacrifice. The, Jesus' sacrifice continues, which is why in the Catholic Church you have a crucifix with Christ still on it. Because there's a perpetuation of the sacrifice. In the Mass, the sacrifice continues. Where we would say he, he died once, and he is now raised, he has ascended, he is in glory. He is not a continuing sacrifice. His sacrifice was once for all. Okay. And Jesus passed bread and said, this is my body. He didn't his body was... His <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> it, it, just, it just makes sense. Yeah. I could pull out a, in the old days when you still carried pictures around well I, 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 could, I, could, I could take my phone, I could open up my phone I could show you a picture of my grandson, I could say this is my grandson you say what your grandson's in your phone, he's so little no you wouldn't think that at all, you would understand this is a representation of my grandson this is what my grandson is like but this, that is not my grandson, that's my phone and that's, a, that's an LED screen on my phone. And it has pixels that have been ac activated by electronics. And it's, not my son, it's not my grandson. It's a picture. But I would say, this is my grandson. So yeah, language is funny that way. Be careful how you press it. I, I think the right interpretation here, because Paul's concern through this section is what's damaging the body and their relations one to another in it. I think we should rightly discern the body in sharing in the table together and our unity in Christ and the shared blessing of His grace and forgiveness that all of us have in Christ. That we are on shared level ground at the cross there is this wonderful spiritual equality in Jesus and in the coming glory that we will share together. So then, don't let a meal you want to enjoy supplant the purpose and proclamation of the Lord's Supper. If anyone's hungry, verse 34, let him eat at home, so that when you come together it will not be for judgment, 
About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Apparently there were some other questions they also asked about the service, and he's like, I'm done, because this is most important. Those other things are minor. This, don't get wrong. Okay, so we'll pause there. Does this forbid church potlucks, by the way? Question I had in the bottom of your notes. Should we then not have potlucks? He says, when if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. Okay. Uh, well, and even if you do, we bring to share together. We don't do a brown bag. There's a, there's something there that's worth being a little fussy about. Sometimes a brown bag might be more convenient, but maybe we'll say no simply because. There's something about the church that we have shared in Christ together. So we're going to share what we have for the benefit of all. All right. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for even struggles in the church in the past. Lord, even difficulties, uh, differences, uh, debates or contentions that you would bring us through that would cause us to think about what we do, to think about how we worship you, Lord, to determine that we won't put ourselves first, we won't put our own understanding first, but we'll seek to know you and to best honor you, to honor those whom you gave yourself for, to yield ourselves for the sake of others. Lord, thank you for the exercise even of questions and debates that we might seek your truth above our own perspective. And help us then to walk in that, to yield our will to your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.